With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Welcome, it is your Weekend Magic Podcast, I'm your host, Dave Ledra, I'm coming to you from, live from the airport bar at JFK Airport in New York, where I'm having a, having a pint, talking on Skype with Om, Om Arvind, Om, um, welcome, welcome to the show. <laughs> well, glad to be back after a couple weeks of, I don't know, just scheduling issues, I guess. Yeah, for, for, for both of us, and obviously here, or Keon isn't here, he is under the weather, um, which has one of the reasons why I will also be recording this show, so hopefully we get this up um, and you guys all can hear what we're both saying. Um, yeah, I'm having a couple of pints, just going to be really nice and relaxed because um, uh, we had a very nice, I mean, like, literally I'm on my way to Madrid, so we'll do a show after the Champions League game, um, coming up later in the show. We're going to drop in some audio of our interview that Ohm and I just had with Teddy Malio, my buddy, Liverpool supporter uh, for Let's Week Football, where we talked about everything from the Champions League to the U.S. men's national team and all that stuff. Um, but we are now here to talk exclusively about Real Madrid, and we're going to talk, Ohm, about, I think, what I, what I saw was a quite impressive 3-0 beatdown of uh, Paco Hemmes's Las Palmas uh, away with goals from Gareth Bale and Karim Benzema for Real Madrid. Yeah, so I thought that was arguably our most comfortable win of the season right up there when we thrashed Sevilla. I think it was 5-0. Um, it's just Paco Jemez was at one point seemed to be a rising star in La Liga, but I think he's just too impractical. I think the better version of what Paco Jemez tries to be is Kike Setien at Real yep. Betis. I was but just thinking that myself, actually. The thing, the thing about Paco Jemez, right, is he tries, he tries to do Hegel de position, positional play, but he only focuses on on that philosophy in the attacking phases of the game, and really, seventy percent of it is about what you do on defense and how you press. And right. You you can just see it with with the way he's managed his team. There's been they have no defensive structure. That there's no compactness whatsoever, and it's just 
And also, he doesn't necessarily have the quality of players to play the style that he wants to, mm-hmm. the way that he wants to. So that game, I don't think we we even played that particularly well in possession. We sometimes I think our our spacing was a little off. You know, some of some of our players were when you know Bale and Bale was kind of roaming. It our players didn't necessarily adjust to that all that well, and and we had players that were right. too clogged together. But all we needed to do was. We actually pressed quite well, so we just man marked the deeper midfielders of on on Las right. Palmas. They weren't it, they were so insistent on playing their way out that you know eventually all they could do was just give the ball away, and then their goalkeeper eventually just started bombing it up the field, and then we just counter attack into space because Las Palmas hadn't prepared themselves in possession to basically stop a counter attack. And it was just easy as pie from then it, on. And it, I wasn't surprised for us to, to win that that easily. No, I mean, in fact, I'm surprised Madrid didn't score three or four more. I mean, one of the things that we were also noticing, as you were saying, right, um, is that Madrid was very much prepared for Las Palmas to try to bring it out of the back. And it wasn't just that Madrid, I think, executed a counterpress really well. Um, <laughs> I I also I also think that Madrid... Uh, I, just got the benefit of the doubt, or not doubt, but like just got the benefit of some really sloppy play out of the back. So if you are a team that's not super technically skilled like Las Palmas, and you try to run, you know, a a slow build up out of the back against a team that's executing a pretty competent press like Madrid, like any mistake is going to get punished. And and Madrid were winning balls all throughout Las Palmas' half whenever they were trying to come out of the back, which led the, uh, the, the, the keeper to start blasting the ball up the pitch. Yeah, and I think, see, that that's the problem, I think, with Paco Hemis, with, with this particular side he's managing and the way he approached it, because Zidane knew what he was going to do. I thought of, of all the games we've had this season, I think he planned for, for this one. I think this was one of the best plans he had, even though he didn't play particularly well in possession, because all he did was he... He rigorously man-marked, right. you know, Las Palmas' deeper midfielders. And when Las Palmas inevitably found that they could not play their way out of the back through short passes, they didn't have a plan to go more direct. I mean, there's no shame in going more direct. Teams that play positional play do it sometimes. But because Paco Hemes was so insistent on playing short out the back, when they wanted to go long, they didn't have players in the right in the right place, didn't have in the right proximity to win 50-50 balls, to win knockdowns. So when they did go direct, they maybe won the ball like, I don't know, like five out of like the 15 to 20 times they did that. And we right. won the rest. And then they weren't in a position to stop the counter. And, and, and that was it. I mean, those were the tactics in the game. It was pretty simple. Right. And and on top of it, I mean, like, obviously, I think that's the appropriate tactical rundown. I think importantly, you have to have, you know, we have to shout out, shout out. But I, I we have to recognize that in this match um, it's it's quite important that um, that that the players that, that we that we recognize the players who really stood up right and and actually executed the game plan perfectly and I think in particular in order for this game to work the way it did you can't have you know you can't have this match you know run as and won as easily without uh, Jesus Vallejo and Rafael Baran, who both I thought played absolutely imperiously well out of the back, just controlling even you know when whenever you know Las Palmas tried to move forward quickly, those guys were absolutely always there. There were moments when it looked like there might be an attack on, 
but both Madrid center defenders were always there to get in their face, to make things harder, uh, uh, and to stop Las Palmas from, from having you know, anything even resembling a coherent press. Yeah, I was, I mean, I everyone knows by now I'm a huge Jesus Vallejo fan, and basically what he did versus Las Palmas kind of shows why I am. I mean, he hasn't gotten many chances this season because of injury, but basically every time he's played, he's shown exactly why he's such a big talent. He's just mature beyond his years. I mean, the way he reads the game, there, there are a lot of situations that could have become more troubling for us when, you know, they would play Cayeri in and... Vallejo would sweep up at the back, would adequately move into right. wide positions when, when our fullbacks had pushed up and snuff it all out. And just positionally, he was really intelligent and allowed it allowed him to prevent and stop attacks, you know, before they could happen or before they could really materialize. And that's just something invaluable to have. Yeah. And fingers crossed that he doesn't get injured, you know, many more times in the future. If if he stays fit. It, we're going to see those types of excellent performances 90% of the time from and, now on. And, and, and putting him next to someone like Varane, who can make up for maybe some of the less... You know, I mean, look, I, in my view, Jesus Vallejo is already you know, maybe the second best, second most technically nuanced center defender on the roster. Varane, in contrast, is you know also quite nuanced and understands and reads the game well, but he also can take more risks because of his absolutely overwhelming physical physical attributes in particular that speed and we saw time and time again that sh- like there were moments when yeah Vallejo was back defending his man and then Baran would outrun simply outrun the guy on the ball to put himself in a position to slow the cat down and turn what would have been either a, a dangerous counterattack into a Las Palmas set piece against a Madrid defense that was totally ready for anything they had that that was coming at them. I mean, uh, Las Palmas only executed, I think, two or three shots the entire match. There was not a single moment, um, and and maybe maybe you can correct me if if you disagree, but, like, there wasn't a single, you know, know, moment that entire match where I was actually worried that Las Palmas was going to score. I mean, they, they actually had quite a few shots. They had 17, but I don't think any of those were of particularly great quality, if I remember correctly. Like, yeah, like like you said, I wasn't I wasn't really all that worried. Um, I mean, it was mainly because, like 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 I said before, we just completely suffocated their build up, and that's just going to make it harder, especially when you're insistent on on building up short from the back to create those quality chances because that's. You know, we we stopped your prime example of doing that. So yeah, Las Palmas' expected goals total was 0.67 off 17 shots, which isn't very good at all. And ours was 3.72, and we scored three goals. So, I right. mean, yeah, we completely dominated that contest, and Las Palmas didn't really threaten us at all. And I think, I mean, obviously Madrid scored from the you know two penalties that they received, but. Yeah, that that is an underselling of the total chances and total offense that Madrid created against the Las Palmas team. That, I mean, it did play Paco Hemis's style, right, <laughs> which is very much attacking and very much open, but it also like was very much uh, <laughs> exploited and exploitable by this Real Madrid side. I thought, in particular, um, the combination of Benzema, Bale. Asensio and Lucas Vazquez actually did, I think, one of the first times where I felt like every single one of them had a standout match together um, while 
being, you know, supported perfectly by, I think, man of the match for me, Luka Modric, who yeah, I agree. was yeah. just, uh, you know, top to bottom and in absolutely, absolutely stellar form. Um, and I think another classic Modric performance because it's his defense that really underrates him, right? He, so many interceptions, so many counterattacks slowed down or stopped entirely, so many, you know, uh, uh, moments where he would not just stop a Las Palmas attack, but literally turn their movement into a, uh, a spatial opening for one of Real Madrid's wingers. Just an imperious performance. Yeah, I mean, having no defensive compactness against a player like Luka Modric is, is just suicide. Because if you remember his pass to Gareth Bale, which led to um, the opening goal, I think it was where Bale ran in on the left wing and finished it. It came off Real Madrid winning the ball, and then Modric just having a significant amount of space, a significant amount of time to pick his spot and the space to do so. And if you if you give that kind of time and space to a player like Luka Modric, he will play his passes to utter perfection. And that's what we saw the entire game, just us winning the ball back, sometimes Modric winning it back himself, and then Modric just spraying passes across the field into good areas and allowing us to quickly advance into the final third. And, I, I mean, it's just... That's on Paco Hemis. I mean, he could have he could set up, he could have set up his side in a different way, but he set it up in a way that played straight into Ramos' hands and into Luka Modric's hands. In particular, exactly right. Like in, I. Uh, sorry, I just got another beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so, uh, I, I I wanted to underline in particular that. By by opening up the match and and spraying you know his players around in the in this particular like kind of chaotic formation, Hemes, I think I mean as he is wont to do or is wont to happen, underestimated the ability of Luka Modric in very like like I said very specifically right to pick apart a team that doesn't have a coherent uh, structure both on defense and on offense. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say that's accurate. Um, I think another thing that I wanted to mention that obviously everyone who knows our show knows that I'm going to say that, like, talk about this, but I would also mention I thought Gareth Bale looked really good. Um, we saw some of the very classic, uh, you know, Bale, you know, some of the stuff that we, we made us fall in love with Bale, like just this very much power performance rushing down the left wing. Um, and interplaying with Benzema to the point where, you know, and obviously his finish on his first goal was, you know, absolutely world class. And uh, yeah. wanted to mention him as well. Yeah, I think in addition to Bale, like you mentioned Benzema, so I we we all know we always say that Benzema contributes to build up and blah blah blah. But okay, so here's here's the statistic, right? So XG build up, I mentioned it before. It just basically counts. Basically, every player involved in a passing sequence that leads to a shot and XG buildup excludes the player who made the final pass and the final shot. So you just get the people contributing to buildup. And so for Real Madrid, the highest was Marco Asensio with 0.65 right. expected goals in buildup. And then you have Karim Benzema at 0.51, who is our center forward and has the second highest expected goal buildup figure in our team. And I mean, 
that that's just what he provides. I mean, that's just how good he is. I mean, his fin. I mean, the only downside really was his finishing. And yep. I mean, it was it was kind of a big downside. I mean, it didn't affect the result, but his expected goals was two point two nine, and he is... scored one goal from a penalty. I mean, he missed two really good opportunities that were like basically tap-ins. Yeah. I mean, that's been the downside for. I mean, basically, just sum up his downside for for this season. That's what it's been. I, I mean, he has. Say, yeah. I think he's had like. Um, his expected goal total for this season in the league is 12.8 expected goals, and he only has five goals in the league. So I think that sums up right. what he's lost, I think, over the past couple of seasons. But, I mean, he still provides a lot, and, and well, we saw that versus Las Palmas. Well, um, one of the measures that Evan and I had previously talked about in with football, actually, is we've, we've seen a lot of conversation of, like, uh, how expected goals, like goals scored to expected goals as a ratio, can like, does actually tell you a fair amount, especially of a career, like a career retrospective stat of how you know good a finisher is. Because essentially, right, what expected goals is is a uh, uh, a stat that creates a mean player, right? Like a player that, yeah. like yeah. A, a replacement level or an ex, like a normal average player. And an average player in this setting scores a goal this percentage of the time, right? So you add yeah. that up over a, uh, over a career, and and really the, the the more data points you get, especially over time, the better you kind of see uh, how how this player you know, uh, overperforms, right? And that, that to me, uh, is, is actually a really good way of talking about how good a player is vis-a-vis or relative to the average player. And the problem is that that stat doesn't really capture a player like Benzema who has finishing issues, right? And it definitely does, and it will reflect his finishing issues, but it also won't reflect, I mean, and I think maybe we have to talk about a bigger stat that includes like goals scored that involve a touch from Benzema, right? Which is a, uh, a, a maybe a more elusive stat, but it's one that I think may capture him more because he actually is very involved with all of Real Madrid's goals, like a lot of Real Madrid's goals, even if, you know, look at that, like look at today against Las Palmas, a couple of days ago against Las Palmas, there were a couple of moments where not only did he you know, obviously do kind of a classic Benzema thing where he seeded a pass, you know, that, that moment where he had a one-on-one and he decided to try to play Bale through and it, he just overhit it and Bale just couldn't get on the end of it. But there was also that moment where, you know, he was slightly offside and the ball was ricocheting, but he did have a shot on goal. And, you know, even in, you would expect kind of a, let's say Paco Alcazar, right? So a, a average to below average striker. And I know that that's shitting on Barca, but whatever. Uh, would you would expect that guy to put that shot away, right? And Benzema missed it. Yeah. I mean, I think over the course of Benzema's career, I, this is something a lot of people, like, looking at his recent finish issues, try to say he's a bad finisher over his career. Over his career, Benzema's actually finished. He's an above-average finisher. He finished. He's generally finished above his expected goal total. I mean, it's really only been the, the last season in this one. So you were talking about, like, a statistic that that would show Benzema's involvement, you know, without just looking at goal scoring. So the XG buildup was kind of that, but XG chain mm-hmm. shows basically everyone involved in the passing sequence, including the, the f- final passer and the shooter. And so Benzema's XG chain on the season 
is 21.12. So of so basically in all the possession sequences leading to a shot that Benzema has been involved in, you'd expect that to amount to around 21 goals, which you know that's 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 pretty incredible. That's huge, yeah. If you think about it. That, that that's huge, right? And and well, I think that um, again we are at the very cutting edge, right? At the very beginning of an, a revolution in analytics that involves. XGs, and we're actually going to answer some questions on that in a second. But the 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 expected goals metric and the way to think about expected goals is actually the kind of thing that's going to allow us to open up a whole realm of reverse, like like comparative statistics in this sport. Now we we still don't really have um, which is I think the holy grail in soccer is predictive statistics. But what we are going, we're finally developing is comparative statistics that actually really do show talent in a way that we didn't previously have, where we have a lot of stats that showed like, you know, talent plus luck. And we've been trying to isolate luck, but a lot of this stuff also isolates like a certain level of talent and like what you're what you're good at and certain types of things. And now the next step on top of all of that, right? And this is the way baseball went too, right? Was that uh, we, we, when we isolated these two things, we began to create predictive stats. And hopefully, we can get to a place where we get predictive stats in the sport. Because that actually really is the, <laughs> the holy grail if you're, say, building a team. Um, and I think when we develop a stat like that, and when we develop these really advanced, you know, retrospective comparative stats, which we're just now getting, like XG chain, and like, you know, one of the things that I really like, um, and, and sorry to go off on a tangent, but is this notion of expected saves versus goals allowed, um, which is, which is a, a defensive stat for keepers. And what we've seen right now is that David De Gea basically is you know, a god when it comes to that stuff, right? Where he'll have something like he, you know, know, an average keeper per 100 shots on goal, given the quality of the shots on David De Gea, an average keeper would have allowed, you know, or, you know, 100, you know, some some high number, right? And he's saved, you know, he, he has this hugely high number, um, of, of, of saves versus what he should. So that's the kind of stuff we're going to get, I think, down the road. Um, okay. All of that being said, um, and I think we, we surprisingly agree that our man of the match with Las Palmas, right, was uh, Modric. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think maybe it was a low-key choice. I don't know. Maybe a lot of fans saw it the way that oh, we I'm did. I'm pretty sure it's low-key, man. I, I've heard a lot of people talking about uh, uh, Asensio, which I think is a pretty interesting choice. Yeah, I think Asensio I think Asensio was pretty good. Like I said, with the XG I build-up stat, he was Bale. really involved. Yeah, Bill. I mean, there was a lot of players you could have chosen. I mean, it's not like Modric is like he was clearly the only pick, but I think if you go back and, and you look at the game and you just kind of focus – on the what was the tactical crux like what 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 was the tactical kind of battle that won us the game and then what then which player then capitalized on on the tactics to then basically spur us on to victory and it was Modric like like because like we mentioned before it was because of you know Zidane's simple tactical plan and then Modric essentially taking over once we won the ball back and then spraying the ball all over the place and, and essentially shifting the entire team yeah. up into the final third within seconds and then our attacking players did the magic. So, I mean, Modric was the catalyst against Las Palmas and I think he was the most influential player. 
So, which is why I would give him the man of the match. But I think Asensio, Bale, Benzema. I mean, even if you wanted to go like Vallejo or Varane, I, there were a lot of good players that day. And I mean, for me, my 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 man of the match uh, is Kaylor's haircut and my, you know, <laughs> no, like he ruled. He looks like Toshiro Mifune. That's I, his... I hate I hate his haircut. Oh, shut up! You're, you're so wrong. You <laughs> all you haters, you're you're all wrong. Like Bale is like doing his like very like hipster samurai look Kaylor was like you know what I instead of looking like a hipster samurai I'm gonna look like actual samurai but you know who's real I mean I think we can all agree the real disaster was Taylor I thought Sergio Ramos would you know have guided him in the right session after making that mistake but you know I guess Ramos is not as good of a leader as we thought he was (laughs) I guess not man because oof I I mean I gotta tell you because I thought that bleaching because that wasn't like bleach tips like Ronaldo did bleach tips which was really also a catastrophe but like I thought like I actually liked that oh yeah you did well you should yeah. do it then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like but I'm saying, I thought bleaching like full bleaching that went out of style in the 90s I thought like that was like a way back not just 90s like it was an 80s 90s villain haircut so that's really the star of the match um, all right, let's jump in. Let's jump into some of our questions because, um, and we're going to roll our interview with Teddy later uh, in a second. But let's do some of our questions first. Um, shout out so Blake Brown, um, who we answered a question about the Bernabeu for a while back. Oh my God, Eleanor is just telling me that Cisco, <laughs> the '90s rapper, rocked an amazing bleached haircut. So, shout out that that is deep cut, awesome. Um, Okay, so Blake Blake Brown has a question. I think. <laughs> do not apologize. Um, Om, I think you're going to really enjoy this question. Blake Brown asks us, do you guys think that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo might make a good manager down the road? I watched a video of him at Euro Final in 2016, and it made me wonder how he would be as a manager. He seems to have great leadership and motivational skills. I, that's a good question. I mean... He does. I mean, he clearly has good leadership skills, but it's a lot more than just being able to pump up your team. I mean, tactics are more and more, have more and more to play with the game, especially as we see we're transitioning into a kind of where if you're not going to do positional play, you've got to implement some concepts that are related to positional play. So tactics are just a lot more complex than what they used to be. So, I mean, I really have no idea if Ronaldo, you know, has that tactical knowledge now and then would go on and be able to translate it as a coach. I mean, I know personally that Ronaldo, I I, I would bet money that Ronaldo's not becoming a coach be- just because multiple times he said that he has no interest in coaching. And I think if you don't have interest in coaching, I mean, it's a fair bet that you're not going to be that great of a coach simply because then you're not going to think about the game necessarily in that same way but yeah i mean who knows i mean maybe it's possible if ronaldo changes his mind they could go on to become a decent coach i mean i i think he'd be good at whatever he decided to put his mind to just because that's sort of his personality but i actually do agree that it's it's rare that people like ronaldo who are these absolute physical and mental specimens, like the absolute best, the, the, the top, top, top of the line go on to be great coaches. And you can look across sports, and this is almost always true. Uh, you know, Maradona was not a good coach, for example. He was awful. <laughs> he was an awful coach. But we also saw people like 
Uh, you know, Michael Jordan didn't even try to coach, for example. Um, there are a number of other examples of this where it, it and part of the reason is not that they uh, wouldn't be theoretically good coaches. It's that they, um, uh, uh, it's that they expect their players to um, be able to do things that maybe they, when they were uh, players, were able to do, and th- that you know they could kind of get around tactical mistakes with their own talent. And and I have a lot of other people that I was had in mind. Oh, awesome. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, a lot of other people that I had in mind um, when I was thinking about this the, you know, this question, and and fundamentally the answer is that the types of people that become great coaches are the types of people who in their day-to-day games had to have all of these tactical things running through their head. So I think, for example, and I hate to say this, I think Xavi might very well end up as a pretty good coach, although I do think he has a lot of implicit biases. Um, (laughs) um, I do think that Zidane, you know, was exactly the type of person to become a really good coach. I do not think that Messi, I don't think Ronaldo would be a good coach. I don't think Ronaldo, OG Ronaldo, would be a good coach. Uh, I do think Xabi Alonso could be a very good coach, yeah. right? I do think that Fabio Cannavaro could, like, is currently coaching, could very well end up being a very good coach. These are the Iker Casillas, maybe even, but it's it's very rarely the people at the very, 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 very top of their game that become coaches. And I'm also thinking, like I said, about the NBA. Like I don't think, you know, Magic Johnson <laughs> was ever going to be a coach. Like none of these guys became good coaches. So, um, with that in mind, let's also let's do some happier stuff. Because I, so there are other people that maybe didn't have the physical gills, gifts uh, um, but did have some of you know, this guts and some of this ability to kind of motivate people. And I think Raul, for example, if he wanted to, I, I, I really could see being a good coach. Not because necessarily I believe that he already knows all the tactical stuff, but mainly because um, I think he's an incredible leader and a proven one. Well, I think we'll get to we'll get to see soon enough because he is taking over one of the youth sides, if I'm not wrong. So, we're, yeah, we're gonna see in over the seasons if he if if he will be a good coach. And I mean, I'm not I'm not ruling anything out. I mean, I didn't think Guti would necessarily be the the greatest coach given his like <laughs> kind of crazy personality as a yep. player. But I mean, he's a totally he's apparently been a totally different person as a coach and tactically he has actually been very advanced and very progressive and he's implemented some aspects of positional play in what he does. So, I mean, he's just been one huge surprise. So, and especially after I ruled out Zidane, you know, I said he wasn't going to do anything here and then he went on to win back-to-back Champions Leagues. I, I, I've decided by this point that I'm not going to rule anyone out until I actually <laughs> until I actually see their body of work and then I can judge them. Um, okay, so let us, let us hop on to another one of these questions. Um, all right, here's a question we've answered many times, but I, I, I don't want to just dismiss it entirely. I just, I do, I just do, I want to get this out of the way because we've answered it a lot. Um, Essa Hariri asks us, um, all right, can you just please explain what we mean by expected goals and how this statistic is calculated? Uh, yeah, so, Om, do you want to just hop in because... Yeah, so expected goals simply is a statistic 
that tells you the amount of goals that you're expected to score. And it's based on the most primary factor is the location of the shot. So if you you can do this, if you wanted to build your own expected goals model, you can look at shots from inside the penalty area, inside the box and outside the box, find what the conversion rate is for all of those shots, and then assign that as the expected goals for shots outside the box, inside the box, and in the penalty box, and then you can compare that to actual goals scored, and you will have a pretty decent correlation. It won't be great, but you'll have a pretty decent correlation between the two. And what advanced, you know, statisticians do in in our current day is they do way more than that. So they consider the location of the shot way more accurately. So they'll use XY coordinates to figure the exact location of the shot and judge the conversion rate from there. They'll look at which part of the body you use. So obviously if you're trying to shoot with your head, it becomes a lot harder. Um, they consider the type of pass. So a, a lofted pass is a lot harder than, than you know, a, a, grounded pa- a grounded cross. And they'll consider things like if you dribbled you know, before your shot, that generally gets you into a better position. So they'll take in a multitude of factors. Um, Stratavet considers defensive pressure and the number of players between the, the shot and the goal. So consider all these factors to essentially calculate what the probability is of you scoring from any given situation, and that's the expected goal value. And um, then you use that to compare against the actual goal total, and then and- that's... And but all of those numbers, right? Um, just and just to clarify, because I think I mentioned this earlier in the show, all of those numbers are based on a historical data set of yeah. people who took similar shots in similar positions. Like and ten thousand shots. Right. Exactly. But that is why when when we talk about comparative stats, why the entire universe of expected whatever, right, expected assists, expected goals, XPG chains, all of that is actually the, the first step in a series of steps that, that allow us to create a, uh, a type of comparative stat that is incredibly useful when determining talent relative to what we would call a uh, replacement or an average level player. In baseball, we have something called wins above replacement. And the reason that that is an important and useful stat is because we have calculated all of the different statistical things that cre- that can create or add up to what we would understand to be a win, a game that's won. Now, that's not something we're going to get for this sport, I don't think. But we are going to get in the, the notion of a replacement-level player. That is, a, place, a player who is what we would call the league average, or someone who you could get off of your bench and just sub in and be basically the same as anyone else. Um, so... Uh, I think in this sport, we're going to be able to say, and it's going to be incredibly useful to talk about how much better a player is versus what we would understand to be this replacement or league average level player. And that that is a huge step up in terms of the world of statistics uh, when it comes to this sport. Yeah, I, I I agree with that take oh, completely. I don't know if you were particularly involved in like, or or knew the people involved in the beginning of this baseball stuff, but the statistical revolution in sports has been going on. Like, it's not something that stopped. It's not something that's just in the '90s, but it's something that you you know personally. People that were involved in the very beginning of it, but also that 
these kind of advanced metrics are still happening. So, for example, our friend Graham Macri, who we've had on the show, who is a very good friend of the podcast, created a baseball statistic, right, called... Um, so it's, it's, it's one of the different <laughs> versions of what we call fielding independent pitching, if you're a baseball fan. So he's another amazing person to follow, and, and, and soccer is just another realm where we're going to end up with, with metrics like this. And it's so exciting to be, you know, working in this space and uh, working with you, Ohm, because I know that you... Um, are one of the people that's, that's pushing some of the, the levels of data that we can, you know, conclusions we can draw with some of this data, but also just generally being part of this world. And, uh, yeah, anyways, I encourage everyone to follow you and, and some of these other people. But I would encourage you personally to go and look at the development, the historical development of baseball statistics, because I think there's a lot to be learned in our, in the field of soccer and, and, and this sport from the way that baseball, that the baseball statistics revolution happened. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I especially agree with you telling everyone to follow me. That's definitely something you should do. <laughs> follow me too, because I have a lot to say about drinking in um, <laughs> bars. Um, and uh, I have a lot to say about how ugly Teo's hair is. Um, and uh, uh, early 20th century Japanese samurai movies. I'm a really good follow on Twitter, at El Ezra. Um, all right, next question. <laughs> Sajid Riaz. Um, actually, you know what? No, let's do, um, let's do our buddy Shay. Shay Thierry has a lot to say. So let's talk about Shay's question. Shay says, um, happy victory, happy Easter, happy Passover, Passover, Seda Barda Tekian. So, yes, happy Pesach, happy Easter, happy everything to the people who are celebrating. Um, Yes, uh, so happy stuff, Shay says. Returning from the evil international break and bagging an easy 0-3 victory is always great, especially with so many players rested. Two, Barcelona drew and officially cannot break the 100-point threshold in this league anymore. That's pretty dope. Three, solid bail and Vallejo performance. Okay, so Shay says, not so happy stuff. I am so grateful to Zidane for not even calling up Ceballos and not even playing Mayoral. As we know, there is scientific evidence that if they, that if playing, that playing them will bring about the nuclear holocaust. Let's quickly answer that. It's a good point. Where, where was Ceballos? Ohm, what's going on? Yeah, so I saw all I've seen is one OS report, you know, saying out of the blue, not sourced, obviously, because why would you source things? But just saying that Danny said Bios had picked up an injury with his ankle, which seems like a probable issue. But I, I mean, I could I could be out of the loop here. But I haven't seen anything from the club confirming that that Danny Ceballos was indeed injured, and therefore that is why um, he did not play. I, it was I think it was just a fact that Ceballos had played in two consecutive international matches, but I. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm trying really hard to justify not putting him in the squad or even, you know, just on the bench. Uh, yeah. It's because it doesn't make sense to me. He hasn't played much this season. He has a ton of energy, even if he plays two consecutive international matches at yeah. a level. Agreed. At a U21 level, which is like, I mean, it's it's baby stuff for him. I mean, he dominated the games if you watch them. As did I, Vallejo, though. Like, Vallejo yeah, I mean, he could And Vallejo played. So, I mean, it's. I just think there's this thing between where Zidane just. I either just doesn't trust Ceballos or just doesn't like his style of play because 
it, it was a similar thing with Hamas, even though they're sort of a slightly different players that Zidane just didn't like. Hamas' style of playing didn't believe it fit in his system, and it could be something like that. Maybe it's something in training, but from whatever I've seen, I think Ceballos deserves a lot more minutes, and I think he definitely deserved at least a bench spot versus Las Palmas. Um, I totally agree. Um, as for Mayoral, I'm less, you know, less upset. But Ceballos, I really am. I just don't understand it. I, I would have started him. Anyways, um, next one from Shay. Uh, as a former Vaskeptic, I love this. That's such a good word, Vaskeptic. So, skeptic of Lucas Vazquez, Vaskeptic. <laughs> <laughs> he is doing an amazing job, and I hope he gets called for the World Cup. Do you think there's a chance? Uh, it is annoying that he was not called up for international duty last week, despite his amazing form. By the way, Shay, Benzema didn't play for France, so that that's probably why he played. Um, and that's why Mayoral didn't. Just, just, just one reason. Benzema is going to get all the game time for Real Madrid uh, on after international breaks because, whatever reason, and by whatever reason we know exactly what reason, <laughs> the, the French team won't call him because of how shady he is with respect to all of his incredibly regular friends who definitely don't blackmail people, um, and he definitely isn't like a drug lord. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, anyways, um, uh, yeah, I think, um, I, I think there's a shot Vasquez makes the World Cup. I, I mean, I think there's a shot, but it's an outside check because Spain is just so stacked. I mean, like so there's r- really, I mean, you can create a triple depth chart of just players who who could all have an argument. I mean, you have. Uh, you know, a lot of underrated forwards, you know, who could maybe steal... Who, who, I mean, I don't think they'll steal Morata's place, but there's talk that they might when Morata wasn't called up. I mean, it. there's just so there's just so many players to choose from that at the end of the day, there's going to be a couple players like yeah. Lucas who are, who are pretty good players, but not insanely talented and who are going to feel, you know, rightly aggrieved that they went on the squad. Um, I, I mean, as a Real Madrid fan, as a Lucas Vazquez fan from day one... I, I would put him on there because I think he provides you with, you know, unique qualities as a winger. You know, I, defense, b- defensive qualities are especially important in a World Cup, so I, I yeah. would take him. But I totally understand why why, why yep. the manager wouldn't. I mean, it's just so stacked. And there might be injuries still, too. That's another thing that people keep forgetting. All right, um, last two questions. First of all, we can dispense with one really quickly. Sajid Brayaz, um, Atletico are nine points behind Barca. Uh, as it stands um, with them one up against Dep, I don't know what ended up happening with eight games left to play. Would you take the bullet and have us lose to Atleti if it meant they steal La Liga from Barca under their noses and win the UCL? Uh, no, I wouldn't. Sorry, I, I don't. I don't want a, a, um, Real Madrid to lose to Atletico. I mean, first of all, no, because just because you know you're you're professionals right you have to win for the fans i mean and also it's just it's not going to do us any favors going into champions league matches losing to a rival in the cycle i mean getting into a losing mindset whether you whether you're like tanking on purpose like an nba team like some nba teams you know cough cough the mavericks are doing now <laughs> um it you never want to get into that mindset because it just affects you and it, it would knock you off your rhythm. And I'd say right now we're in a pretty good winning winning rhythm. That just and we know Real Madrid is a momentum team. We've gone on yes, long runs extremely. and then just crashed. Just one loss has just completely knocked us off our rhythm. So I wouldn't risk it. And then there's also the fact that Atletico are only nine points off Barca. And 
I let's just be honest here. Barcelona are not losing the league. Even if we purposely threw away a game um, against Atletico Madrid, it's not going to be enough to throw throw off Barcelona. Yeah, I mean, they I were. I. It's just the the, the football and gods just aren't going to let it happen. We saw what happened versus Sevilla. Sevilla should have won that game six 0 Instead, they blew chances after chance after chance, and then Suarez scores, and then Messi scores a ridiculous goal from range to win it at the death. I and can't I mean, they're just gonna win this thing. They might go. They might go unbeaten. I mean, I hope to God that Real Madrid beats Barcelona. Yeah. You know, I think that's the thirty-fourth league match or something like that. We, I mean, we have. It's gonna be us, I think, that would stop them from going unbeaten. I think that's basically gonna be their only blip on the season if it happens, because, yeah, you know, since they're not that. since they're not losing the league, I don't, I I don't think there's any reason to throw that game against Atletico Madrid. Yeah. Um, all right, so Leon Stavronakis, last question. Was that a 4-2-3-1 yesterday against Las Palmas? Bale is amazing whenever healthy and put in positions where he can use his talents. Um, I'm tempted that people question who our second-best attacker is. Um, I'm amazed, sorry. I'm amazed that people question who our second-best attacker is. Wake up, people. It's Bale by a country mile. That might not, uh, that's not a slight on the others either. Bale is just that good. Eleanor is literally applauding. <laughs> so, Leon, you have a fan. Um, he's a rare player who can carry a team. He defends, too. Yeah, man, I agree. Um, oh, was that a four-two-three-one? That's sort of yeah, what I it thought. Was. It was. I mean, it was It's kind of asymmetric because just because Asensio prefers to drift left and so does um, Benzema, but it was definitely a four-two-three-one. I mean... Like who scored and a bunch of the other sides and the commentators like showed it as a four four two, but it was definitely a four two three one with Asensio as a central attacking midfielder. I agree, and one of the things that annoyed me about the four two three one was that I felt like Lucas Vazquez was straying more from his right side than normal, um, and I don't know if that's how you feel about that, but that's that's the one thing I wanted to add about the stupid formation. I felt like Lucas Vazquez is. He needs to stay on his wing more, and he I, he was popping up in central positions that I didn't want to see him in. Otherwise, yeah, I saw a four through two, four two three one when I was watching, um, and uh, I think the heat maps basically bear that out. Yeah. Um, all right, Um uh, it's great talking to you, my man. Um, stay tuned, everybody, for our conversation with Teddy. Um, and yeah, man, until um, until two or until we talk soon about Juve, a la Madrid. A la Madrid. What's up, man? Uh, word. Um, so, I figured, gentlemen, um, that we would get together. I am obviously sitting here in uh, the bar at JFK <laughs> across the table um, from my wonderful fiance, Eleanor. And I figured we just. Hi, Eleanor. Teddy says hi. <laughs> she says hi. Um, and I, <laughs> we figured we'd just uh, talk a little bit of the Champions League um, because I think both of our sides, Real Madrid, obviously, is playing Juve, but also, Teddy, I think you you guys are playing, you know, Liverpool, Manchester obviously, City. playing Manchester City, which is one of the bigger, more interesting matches, I think, of the of the week. What are, what are your feelings as a Liverpool fan going into that, that shit? Actually, it kind of makes me nervous because... Um, we beat them in the league this year, and it was like a super insanely awesome game. And I feel like 
it's just ripe for some sort of like disappointing failure. <laughs> I mean, you... like it, 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 that would happen, you know? Like, yeah, of course. Since we like finally beat them in the league and they hadn't lost all year, and it was just I don't know. I don't know if it can get better than that. No. Well, I mean, one of the things that I'm really excited about is because of all of these like Pep Guardiola fanboys are like so obsessed with with this particular iteration of his for like his system, Ohm. <laughs> uh, uh, that I am. Well, I know you're not like such a huge like pet fan, but like I also know that like it would be really dope if like Klopp, who runs like whatever the opposite of his system is, like just very very direct attacking football that is just absolute like smash mouth stuff that I adore, were to beat him on this, you know, and 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 make it like what five six years in a row that his teams have crashed out despite like over being like these sense of overwhelming favorites going in. Was that for me? Yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean. I think if there's one team that in the English league that that could potentially beat Manchester City over two legs, it would be Liverpool simply because the way Jurgen Klopp plays is probably the most disruptive for Pep Guardiola's style of, of, of football, which is possession football from the back, building up in a very structured sense. And, and he's always going to build up from the back no matter what. And so... What most teams in the Premier League have done has been to try to sit deep and let Manchester City come on to you, and, and that's basically been suicide because Pep Guardiola teams are just too good when you let them do that, but it's also been suicide to press high up the pitch and let them cut through you and then play through balls into Sané and Sterling on the wing when they have acres of space to attack you. But when Klopp beat City, it was because... He pressed really really well and it's a high risk strategy but if you can pull it off it'll disrupt City's build up it'll it'll destroy their rhythm and it will give you high quality opportunities when you win the ball back and there's never I don't think there's been a better pressing coach in history than Klopp so if there is if there's one team that could that could do it um, from England it would probably be Liverpool and I'd give them a pretty decent chance even though I'd still favor Manchester City right like I mean, Teddy, you must feel basically the same way, right? Like, this is this is a he- like ex- hell of exciting Liverpool team, but, like, this Manchester City side has been absolutely steamrolling, absolutely fucking everyone they play. So, like, you've got to feel, like, if you're going to do it, it would be dope, but also, like, be realistic. I mean, they just don't really lose this year, except they did lose against Wigan. That was pretty funny. It's um, <laughs> awesome. And the FA Cup, I think. Um but yeah, um, and it's it's all, all speaking of that uh, really exhilarating game that we played at them uh, in the league. Liverpool actually almost pissed it away at the end. It was four three, but we were up four one, like halfway through the second half. And so they they're really scary. They can come back from like um, pretty bad situations. Well, he has that that this Manchester City side, right? It has that um, old school Barcelona energy to it, where you just feel like there's never. Um, there's never a solid lead against them, but I, I, I don't know, Ohm or, or either of you guys, if you've seen them slip into like one of those like classic pep problems, like where they, they possess the ball, but don't actually push it forward particularly well. So like one of like the big, you know, knocks on Pep Guardiola's style, like over the past, you know, 10 years or so is that his teams will occasionally kind of. Um, resort to just kind of this 
possession as defense, where in even in situations where they need to score, like they'll do maybe too much of this rotational passing where they don't look to find a through ball. And I don't know if this Manchester team has been as as guilty of that. Um, like I, I almost feel like the, the the personnel that he has created is one of the first post-Messi pep teams that actually does have that attacking bite that maybe his Bayern didn't really have. Yeah, I would I would say that really hasn't been a problem for Manchester City, mainly because I think De Bruyne is is the type of player who enjoys playing high-risk passes, and he likes doing it a lot. And he's very accurate in it, so it doesn't really cost his team. So Pep, I think, is comfortable to sit back and and let De Bruyne go out and do his thing and play these ridiculous passes that wouldn't come off most of the time for most players. And and that really suits his wide players, Sterling and Sané, who are fast, quick. They, they need those types of passes to thrive. And so I think this iteration of, of Pep Guardiola's team is one of his more incisive attacking teams due to the personnel that he has. And to me, that I, I in the matches I've seen, I've never seen that you know that issue that you mentioned be a problem for them for this manchester city side but like it's been a problem historically occasionally uh like for his Bayern side in particular looked really listless his last year i mean uh, i'd say i'd say on occasion it has i i tend to think of pep guardiola's sides as always being purposeful in possession Mm -hmm. but i do think towards the tail end of the seasons when pep was with Bayern. They had won the league so comfortably that they just lost a little bit of that sharpness and focus that is necessary in the latter stages of the Champions League, and so it did come back to bite them. And I think that, you know, that's just going to affect all phases of play, including, you know, when you're in the final third trying to play incisive passes. If you're not 110%, it's going to become a lot more difficult. Well, do you feel that happening potentially with the with the the Premier League? I mean, like they're close to wrapping that shit up as we speak. Like, it's possible that they. You know, they'll lose that edge moving forward, and, yeah, and it is. if you don't yeah. have that edge against a team like Liverpool, like obviously Liverpool is going to make you pay. Any Klopp team will, but especially a Klopp team where, and Teddy, I'm I would be really interested in hearing your thoughts on this. But and a Klopp, you know, Klopp team that relies on like the absolute total genius of Mo Salah, right? Who has become this absolute groundbreaking. You know, Roma was so robbed. <laughs> I mean, it was though, right? I mean, Ohm, did we ever look back? At, I mean, like, at what point do we look back at these series of transfers involving this player and realize that we were all brutally wrong? Like, what did Klopp do to turn this well, dude into into who he is? I just want to say that while I didn't think Salah would be this good, I I never I never thought he was a bad player. I thought Mourinho never used him correctly, and I thought didn't give him enough of a chance. Um, I, th- I thought he was an exceptional player at Roma. I didn't think he was world class. You know, when he played against Madrid, he, I mean, he he destroyed us, and then he'd like either miss, you know, miss the goal yeah. really stupidly, or he just run the ball out of play. And you got the sense that he was a really really good talent, but he was still a little raw, which yeah. is probably why Mourinho didn't have patience with him. I think what Klopp has just done. I think this is the natural maturation of a player who's who's in his peak. 
coupled with Klopp designing a system that is just perfect for him, right. a counter-pressing system that plays on the counter-attack and gives Salah lots and lots of chances to score. I mean, it just doesn't get better than that for a player of his profile. And I think it's just, you know, his own development coupled with that system that's allowed him to allowed him to shine. I'm really happy for him because I've always enjoyed him as a player and I didn't think he would become this good. And now that he has, I mean, it's just a joy to watch. So, Teddy, is he, is he going to look really good in that Real Madrid white shirt next year? <laughs> God, I hate those rumors. People are already starting it. It's all I fun. wouldn't mind him at Real Madrid, I'm just saying. Oh, you, of course. I mean, he's he's on fire. Everybody wants him on their team now. Um, oh, you said you don't want him? That I wouldn't mind him on their team. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a hot take. <laughs> um, yeah, I think he also, Salah benefits immensely from having a center forward in Roberto Firmino that mm-hmm. is um, absolutely like the least selfish like striker I've ever seen. At least, and I only watch Liverpool. I don't watch a lot of other, a lot of other leagues, but um, <clears throat> he just runs constantly and like drags people out of position and lays the ball off. And it's, it's definitely, um, Salah has benefited from that kind of, um, support from the other guys. Yeah. Like, from... What you're saying is he's the exact type of striker that Real Madrid fans hate. Oh, is it? I, I wouldn't know. Yeah, because he's, I mean, I, I made this comparison uh, a while back, <laughs> a couple weeks ago. He's similar to Benzema yep. in what he does. Oh, okay, and sure. Real Madrid fans don't like Benzema because he's not, or a lot of Real Madrid fans don't like him because he's not a classic number nine, and he's a false nine who's who's played the way he has to to benefit players like Ronaldo and oftentimes Bale. And that's what Firmino is doing to benefit Salah. Yeah, and, and one of yeah. the things about Benzema, right, he grew up, I mean, and we, we kind of undersell this a little bit, but like he came to Real Madrid when he was quite young and still in his development. Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus 30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate. Sports Social Podcast Network.